start again, Ryan says that he has the video working, so it might be nice to see that update if we can before I begin. What do you think, Ryan? Should we give it a shot? that are in the backs of the chairs, and as I always say, if one of those would serve you, please take it, and if you know someone who a copy of the scriptures would serve, please take it and give it to them. 525, Psalm 146. I wonder how many Christian hymns or worship songs you can think of that include the word hallelujah. There's a lot. Probably too hard to count. We like to sing here, Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. There's a great old hymn of the faith we sing here, Hallelujah, what a Savior. At the end of our gathering, you see on your worship guide, we're going to sing a song, and the chorus repeats, Oh, sing Hallelujah, our hope springs eternal. Interestingly, the musical zeitgeist of the non-Christian world over the last 40 years or so often thinks of a different song when they hear the word hallelujah in reference to a song. Leonard Cohen's record in 1984 titled Hallelujah wasn't actually a huge hit when it was originally released, but after a cover in 1994, 10 years later, it has since been played and covered time and time and time and time again. But I'm not so sure that Leonard Cohen, or our musical zeitgeist for that matter, is tuned into what that word really means. Cohen's use of the word, as well as the the message of his song, has been the debate of musicians and artists for decades. Apparently he said the song was about disappointing people. He felt like he disappointed people. But in the song, it's kind of confusing. He's talking about David in some ambiguous ways, and then he seems to confuse him with Samson. It gets a little bit strange. He talks about playing music people don't really want to listen to and whatever. I don't personally like the song very much. That's not a popular opinion in our culture. But the psalm's use of the word hallelujah is unquestionable and undebatable. The word has its simple meaning in the phrase that you see translated as the first line of Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. That's what hallelujah means. You praise Yahweh. That Yah at the end is short for the covenant divine name of God. You praise Yahweh, a call to praise the Lord. And it's a word that's really a call that characterizes the last five psalms of the Psalter. We're going to hear three of them, including this one, before the summer is over, and today's is the first. They're called, as Brian alluded to in his prayer, Hallel Psalms, because each of them starts with that call, praise the Lord, or hallelujah. So they are Hallel Psalms. You could, if you felt uh, uh, led to do so, you could turn your page, you could scroll down on your device and see for yourself. Psalm 147, 48, 49, and 50 also all start and end with the call to praise the Lord. And so these 
Hallel Psalms wrap up this delightful collection of divinely inspired biblical hymns and poems. And a call to praise the Lord is exactly what the people of God have always needed to hear frequently. Just those opening words that call the people of God to worship pack quite a punch in terms of modern-day application. But we'll get to that in a few minutes. Let's begin by walking through this hymn, this poem. I'll read it again. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. There's a pretty simple structure to Psalm 146. There are these bookending calls to worship. The first, a personal call, and the second, a corporate one that sandwich, if you will, a contrast that's in the meat of this psalm between the futility of trusting feeble man and the wisdom of trusting the infinite God. And so first we have this personal call to worship in verses 1 and 2. We see then the, uh, the, the uh, statement that man is finite and cannot be trusted. Then the statement that God is sovereign and should be trusted. And then finally this, this corporate call to worship at the end. At the core of the message of Psalm 146 is that third part. It's what the most verses are dedicated to, and it is the meat of its message that God is sovereign and should be trusted, contrasting that with the finite nature of man. It's also not a long psalm, and with the last two psalms that I preached being Psalm 119 and Psalm 139, it was a little bit of a a relief to me. So it's a pretty simple one in terms of it being short. There aren't really a lot of confusing terms or phrases, but I think when we're finished, we're going to see that we've been confronted with some profound and life-shaking and life-shaping truths. And so let's look at this opening call to worship in verses 1 and 2. Again, it says, Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. I already told you that this psalm concludes with a a corporate call to worship. And of course, there's a sense to which you could argue that all of the psalms are intended for corporate use. They were sung by God's people in worship. They continue to be sung by God's people in worship together. And in fact, even in this one, that first phrase, praise the Lord, at the very beginning of verse 1, in Hebrew is also plural. And so there's a corporate 
nature to even that opening call. But as you can see in the second part of verse 1 and into verse 2, the pronouns used are personal. I and my, as opposed to the address in verse 10 being to all of Zion, the people of God, the city of God. And so this psalm opens, this Hallel psalm opens with a personal call to worship. And it starts with an address to one's self. It says, oh my soul. And that's exactly what we sang in our song during our call to worship this morning. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. This address to one's self, to praise and bless the Lord. It's as if the psalmist is saying, and we, when we read it and recite it and sing it, self, hallelujah. And so Psalm 146 is both corporate and personal. The psalmist is calling the people of God who would recite and sing this poem to worship the Lord, but the psalmist is also indicating that on a personal and private level, it is appropriate for the people of God to praise the Lord from within their own individual souls, not only as a corporate act. To praise the Lord every day until their last day, verse 2, as long as I live, while I have my being to praise the Lord, singing even His praises until their dying breath. You know, in the United States of America, the sport that dominates TV ratings is football, the NFL. I heard recently that the annual Hall of Fame game, which is uh, played around the induction of various Hall of Fame members, uh, plays mostly backups, and a lot of players that they don't want to risk getting injured, but there's just a game to watch. No one usually that you expect to be a star that fans are looking forward to seeing, but it's still got a 6.3 million viewership, which is big. I don't know a lot about TV ratings, but I heard that's big. Football is king here in the U.S., but in Europe, a different kind of football reigns, and I'm sure our friends from Marseille could attest to that. They would call it football, not football, and they would say that it's the original football. And in fact, that football is bigger there even, I think, than the NFL is here, right? Yeah. And one of the ways that you can tell from what I've heard is by walking past a pub or a bar. Now, I don't know if this is the case in France, but I have heard that it is the case in almost all the UK nations and in other nations such as Germany and Italy. You can walk by a place where a game is on on the inside on the TV and you will not only hear shouts of joy or despair or anger or whatever else, but you will also hear the dulcet tones of people lifting their voices singing praise to their team. Their teams have songs, kind of like what we have in America in terms of college football fight songs. And so you'll hear people singing away, regardless of how lovely it sounds, in praise and honor to the team that has their allegiance. I suspect that you're unlikely to hear college fight songs being sung in the living rooms of various college football fans or even bars in America. And I suspect that at least part of the reason behind that difference in our cultures 
is because to sing someone's or something's praise is by nature to point glory and attention away from self to that thing or person that you are praising. And I think we'd have to admit that we Americans are pretty proud, typically, and some of that can be a good thing. Pride of our, for our nation can be a very good thing. But I wonder if we in our culture are just a little more hesitant to sing the praise of someone or something and point attention to them and laud and honor them. Another thing, in, f- in fact, of course, is that to sing at all can feel rather vulnerable, particularly for those who feel insecure or feel like their lack of training or that they don't sound like they wish they did. They can feel self-conscious about that. But to whatever extent that pride is in there, it's something to note. And it is something to be aware of that at the heart of a hesitancy to sing is sometimes pride. But a humble heart loves to sing praise to God. Because a humble soul is aware of his or her standing before Almighty God and their smallness in comparison to Him, their their subjection to His rule, so to speak. And a humble soul that knows what's real about the one true God and their place in relationship to Him cannot help but glorify Him, praise Him, and even like what Psalm 146 verse 2 calls us to sing Him, sing to Him. What follows this opening call to worship this first part comes part one of a comparison between two potential objects of trust. Verse three, put not your trust in princes, a son of man in whom there's no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth on that very day, his plans perish. And so number two is that man is finite and cannot be trusted. Verse 3 starts with this, don't trust in feeble man, and then verse 4 explains it. Now you see the word in verse 3, princes, that word princes doesn't simply or only refer literally to royalty. Certainly in the ancient Near East there were kings and their regimes as well as those that they designated as representatives to whom princes, the word princes here, would certainly apply. And, of course, there's definitely a clear application there for us regarding putting our hope and trust in politicians and rulers in our own context and the dangers of that. But the idea here is really more broadly one of influence. And so this is not simply a call to not place your hope and trust in a politician, which I think we would all agree is very good advice. But it's also a call not to place hope and trust in any person that's typically regarded as influential. In 2022, a survey was conducted in the U.S. that found that 54% of 13 to 38-year-olds, so basically my oldest to my age, want social media influencer as their vocation. A study in the United Kingdom found 30% of children had listed YouTuber 
as their top career choice. Now, I'm not going to make any comments on that. But clearly, being influential and influenced is a major thing in our time. Just look at the number of comments and likes and subs on any given influencer's social media pages, and you'll be clued into the fact that there is a lot of influencing being done by a lot of different voices, some of whom have no business being as influential as they are. And so I wonder if in our modern context it might be appropriate to think of the princes of verse 3 as being something like our modern-day influencers. And if we think about it that way, I suspect we'll be confronted with the amount of weight that we tend to give Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, TikTok, and whatever other new thing I haven't heard of yet. Because the point of verses 3 and 4 is really clear in verse 4. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Verse 3's warning against putting hope and trust in the influential doesn't mean, of course, that everyone with influence should always be avoided. Certainly not. There are plenty of good voices. There are plenty of faithful teachers of God's word. There are plenty of people who exegete the Bible carefully and apply it well and have good wisdom for us to glean. And even common grace matters. There can be a lot of wisdom out there. But the point is not to put ultimate hope and trust in them because, as verse 4 says, no mere man is going to last forever. That's what verse 4 means. Finite man will one day use up the number of breaths appointed to them by God, and he will die, and he will return to the dust from which he came. And so... Verse 3 says, there's no salvation in man. You can't find what you need most in man. Rather, starting in verse 5, blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord, his God. Number three, God is sovereign and should be trusted. You see, what Psalm 146 is getting at is that God is worthy to be praised because he is sovereign, because he is all-powerful, because he is the infinite, eternal creator who is in control. That word at the beginning of verse 5, blessed, is to be a signal to the reader that this, what follows it, is what's known as a beatitude or a pronouncement of blessing or pronouncement of happiness to those who follow what that beatitude teaches. Brandon walked us through a little bit of that last week as he preached from Psalm 144. This blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, and then so forth, is actually the final beatitude of the Psalter, the last of 26 of them. And that beginning of verse 5 then sets off sort of a list of reasons regarding why it is better to find your hope and help in God than to look for it in finite and feeble man. 
But this isn't just these verses that follow a list of benevolent acts that God does like some great big grandpa in the sky. It's what he's always been doing and it's what redemptive history has always been moving toward and arrived at in Jesus. Look at the beginning of verse 6. He who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. In other words, you trust in God because he is the creator of all things. Interestingly, this use of the phrase, the sea, here is very deliberate. In ancient Near Eastern thought, the totality of creation was three-tiered. The sky, the earth, and the sea, and the water. And so Psalm 146 is saying that there isn't a square inch of the cosmos over which God does not reign because he made all of it. Now look at the end of verse 6. He who keeps faith forever. In other words, he's faithful. He's the God of Jacob at the beginning of verse 5. He called his people and he's sticking with them. And as Jesus said, once you're in his hand, nothing can snatch you out. He keeps faith. Beginning of verse 7. He executes justice for the oppressed. In other words, God also actively pursues vindication or the setting right or justice as the word is here for us. For those who are oppressed. And that is certainly true in a broad sense in that he cares about everything that's going on no matter who it's happening to or where it is. But in this context, it's referring specifically to the covenant people of God. And so in other words, what Psalm 146 is saying here is that those who are his can be certain that even though their oppressors were and are many, and though their persecution was and is great, he will act justly. In its original context, wouldn't the Jews who originally sang and recited this have had to think at least a little bit about the Exodus? The primary act of God's rescue of His people in the Old Testament? He promised that He would care for them. He was faithful to them and He delivered them out of Egypt. And He would continue to stand for them in power and in justice. But friends, isn't this what God did at Calvary? His justice poured out on sin and His people saved. And doesn't that context then put the second part of verse 7 in a clearer light too? That He gives food to the hungry? Because you see, when God brought Israel out of Egypt, they were in a wilderness. But He provided food for them. He cares for all who are hungry the world over. He cares about that. But in the context of God's covenant people trusting him, that's just another example of what God had done for his people in the past, influencing their trusting him in the present and in the future. And remember, he sent not only manna from heaven as the Israelites were in the wilderness, but he sent the eternally satisfying bread of life. In Jesus. Those held captive unjustly, he also frees. You see that at the end of verse 7, the Lord sets the prisoners free. That was good news to Jews who 
faced Babylonian and Assyrian brutality. They could remember what God had done in Egypt as well. But we who read this today know more clearly this side of the cross of Jesus and his empty tomb that there's an even worse captivity than Egyptian or Babylonian or Assyrian oppression. Captivity to sin is worse. And through the grace of God, again, the people of God are freed. In verse 8, the Lord also gives sight. The psalmist may have been thinking of the sight giving that Isaiah prophesied when he said in Isaiah 35, verses 3 through 6, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Sounds a little familiar to some of what Psalm 146 is saying. But again, the grace of God would not only break through into this sinful world by providing physical healing at times, but the restoration of spiritual sight was coming through His Son, Jesus, through whom all people, not just the Jews, but Gentiles like me, are free to be in a restored relationship with God as well. Look at the second part of verse 8. He lifts up those who are bowed down. Isn't bowed down exactly what characterizes all who struggle, who limp and stumble their way through this broken down world, bent over by the pains of brokenness and the problem of their own sin? And isn't lifting up those who are bowed down, whether physically in pain or humiliation or spiritually in shame or guilt, exactly what God has done by bringing His kingdom to us through Jesus. Second part, or, or third part of verse 8. It says that He loves the righteous. Who are the righteous here? Simply, they are those who are His. You see, being righteous has always been dependent on faith, and that's made especially clear to us in the New Testament. But the ancient Jews who read and recited and sang this would have understood this use of the word to refer to those simply who stood in contrast to the wicked. In other words, those who are enemies of God. The rest of these categories from verses five, verse 5 up till now feel a little bit more specifically related to physical suffering than spiritual standing. And so to now start talking about spiritual realities, about whether you're righteous or not, can start to feel like an abrupt shift. But the original audience knew exactly what it meant. It wasn't a veiled reference to those who would one day be saved under the new covenant. It's a reference to God's covenant people contrasted with the wicked. And so in reality, this phrase fits right in with the rest of this list. It's those whom he has called into his family and are not his enemies, those who he loves. But even verse 9, sojourners, in other words, outsiders, strangers to the community of faith, benefit from his grace. And in fact, that's exactly what Jesus brought to fulfillment 
when his saving work was accomplished for people of all nations, both Jew and Gentile. We who were strangers, sojourners, aliens from the people of God, brought in by his grace. And then the widow and the fatherless. Those of us men who are studying James in our partner study, perhaps remember that in the beginning of James it says that true religion is caring for orphans and widows in their distress. Apparently, the widows and the fatherless have always been targets of God's kindness and care. From Psalm 146 all the way to James chapter 1. And then finally, in the third part of verse 9, we see God's people being blessed also includes His judgment of the wicked. That's the final destination of the world. All of God's people forever with Him and all of God's enemies eternally judged. And so what does this beatitude of verse 5 tell us? It tells us that in contrast to the futile nature of trusting in infinite, excuse me, in finite man, trusting in God leads to blessing, to happiness. It's almost as if it might be helpful if the psalm included the word but before blessed so that we see that contrast more clearly. In other words, what this, these verses are saying is don't put your ultimate trust in the influential of this world because mere mortals will one day die. There is no hope in them. But for those who seek refuge in the Lord, for those for whom their hope, their help is found in God, the God who graciously chose Israel, who created everything that there is, who is faithful to his beloved, who is just, who is compassionate, who is loving, who is sovereign, who is wrathful, they're blessed. They're happy. In other words, friends, if I state it in the negative, you will be unhappy in the end if your hope is in anything or anyone other than God. If you're looking for the ultimate help that you need in mere mortals or the things that they've made, if you're looking for your ultimate hope in the influential of this world, whether they be politicians or otherwise, you'll be disappointed. But you will be blessed if your hope and your help is founded and grounded in God. And so no wonder this poem concludes with this corporate call to worship. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. It's saying, here's what's true. The Lord will reign forever. The Lord reigns and will continue to all generations. And in the context of everything else about which this song rehearsed and reminded its reciters and singers, the right response is, he says, is praise. But it's not just a private thing where you quietly bow your head and give praise to the Lord, which you should do. It's starting from within God's people as individuals at the beginning of Psalm 146. But this call to a commitment to praise Him moves outward 
to the whole corporate people of God. That's what Zion is talking about in verse 10. The city of God, the people of God, that God graciously rules. The people of God from the generation that first heard and sang this psalm to the final generation before he returns in full glory can be assured that he is reigning over them graciously and they can trust him. Since Psalm 146 is at its heart a call to praise the Lord, hallelujah, I want to conclude by extending five calls to us from this passage. The first is a call to praise God faithfully. God is faithful to His people, and we faithfully praise Him for it. In other words, even when it doesn't feel like the most natural response to come out of you at whatever moment of your life. Because all your senses are telling you that somehow God has messed this up. And that the life that you're living and the suffering you're enduring and the stress that you're dealing with is some kind of mistake Even when it feels like everything is falling apart, when it feels like your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling, you continue to praise Him faithfully. That's part of the call of Psalm 146. Verse 2 says, As long as I live, while I have my being, I will praise Him. I will sing to Him. Well, my friend, I know, believe me, I know that it is hard to hang on sometimes. I have felt it, continue to feel it. But God is trustworthy. He always has been. He always will be, just like our dear sister Tara shared from her own life. And Psalm 146 calls you to praise Him faithfully. So praise God faithfully. Secondly, praise Him corporately. In other words... If I can just put it in these terms, be faithful to gather with the people of God to praise Him. One of the, this is one of the clearest commands in the New Testament. We are commanded to gather. The people of God, those who He has graciously brought into His kingdom, gather for worship. And to gather for other things too, but this is one of the most important ones. To praise Him, to worship Him, to thank Him, to sing to Him. Those of you who've known me for a while know how much of a big deal corporate worship is to me. used to be the worship pastor here, and so I have to get this in. Please, my friends, lift your voice and sing to God when we gather for worship. It doesn't matter if you think you have a pretty voice. It doesn't matter if the style or the feel of whatever's happening that morning isn't exactly how you would like it to be. No, if the people of God are gathered and singing, join in and praise Him. Friends, let's blow the roof off this place when we sing. Let the neighbors on Fifth and Bush and around us hear us. Let's make Jesus seem as big as he is to everyone in this room and to everyone within earshot of the gathering of this church. Praise him corporately. Third, praise him prayerfully. In most of the Christian context that I have been in, I've observed that it is a common thing for 
Christians, a very understandable one, to confuse prayer to mainly refer to requests. But did you know that a big part of prayer, and in the Psalms, and in other prayers modeled for us in the Bible, and all throughout church history, is praise. Friends, when when you're in prayer, it should not be the case that all that's happening is the verbalization of the checklist of things that you want God to take care of for you, like some Santa sitting on his lap and telling him what you want. No, when we pray, we should praise God. We should say things like, God, you are awesome because you're the creator and sustainer of all things, like Psalm 146 says. You're the savior of sinners like me. You're the judge of all the earth. I trust you. And remember, again, this has a corporate element to it. And so I'm going to go, another, I'm going to, go to another one here. I want to be as clear and gracious as I can be. But friends, if you are at all able to participate in the gatherings for prayer that your local church organizes, you ought to be present. Friends, if praise is corporate and prayer includes praise, then shouldn't the prayers of praise be corporate too? This is a big part of what we do in our monthly prayer lunches. It's exactly what happens as well in our fellowship group gatherings. So friends, if you're part of Redeemer Bible Church and you miss these prayer times, you're missing out. And the rest of us are missing out on you. It's a corporate matter. And so please, please gather with God's people to pray in praise. You will be blessed. You will be happy, as Psalm 146 says, as you trust the Lord and demonstrate it in prayer. Fourth, praise God missionally. This psalm talks about the freedom that God extends to prisoners. He talks about the sojourners that God watches over, the blind people whose eyes God graciously opens. Friends, those have their ultimate spiritual fulfillment in the plan of redemption that has come to the world in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so... A big part of our mission as followers of Jesus who are being and making disciples together is to spread the news that this God, the one true God who made all things, who brings salvation to all who turn to him in repentance and faith. That's what we're called to do as Christians, to be and make disciples of Jesus. And if you're listening to this as someone who's never embraced Jesus as Savior and King, I'm calling you to do so today. And I'm encouraging you to know that the joy and peace and hope that Psalm 146 speaks of can be yours if you'll let go of your sin and embrace Jesus in faith. Finally, praise God faithfully, corporately, prayerfully, missionally, and hopefully. I'm not talking about the kind of hopefully that we that I say to my kids when they say, can we do X, Y, or Z, and I don't want to commit to it. And so I say, oh, hopefully. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about real, steadfast hope that trusts that what God does both now and later in my life and throughout the whole world will reflect his character that he's demonstrated in the past. Friends, he has always done what is good and right and wise 
for his people. That's true. He has always been just. He did not leave his people forever under their oppression, whether Egyptian or Assyrian or Babylonian or Roman. And he's not abandoning his people in their modern-day oppression, whether it be radical Islam in the Middle East or political radicals in our country, whether on the left or on the right. He's certainly not forgotten about your individual, private, and personal trials that you're struggling with either. Your doubts, your battles with sin, battles that you feel like you're losing, the finances that grow tighter and tighter in this economy, the children that you're so burdened for, the job that is so difficult, the health concerns that just come up over and over and over again. You can praise God, hopefully, because you can trust that what He will do now and later will continue to reflect the same character that He has exercised in the past. Because, friends, verse 3 says, A son of man cannot be trusted. A mere human with his destiny being dust like all his forefathers before him is not worthy of ultimate trust. He will fail in this life. And in fact, he won't be around for very long at all because verse 4 says, one day those breaths are going to run out. He will stop breathing and he will return to the dust. In fact, that's exactly what God said would happen in Genesis 3.19, right? By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust. And to dust you shall return. But you know what else God said? In fact, just a, just a few verses earlier from there, he said that the newly cursed man and woman had reason for hope. Because the same serpent who had tempted them to sin would meet his match with the woman's offspring. And even though Adam and Eve would return to the dust, their ancestral line would produce and include someone to do battle with that serpent. And as it turns out, the one God was talking about is the only man in the history of the universe to never return to the dust. Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, was not just a son of man, like Psalm 146.3 describes. He's the son of man who goes before the ancient of days and is given all authority. He is the one who reigns supreme because he alone has been resurrected, never to die again, never to return to the dust. And so while you can never be totally sure that a mere man can be trusted, you can know for certain that God is trustworthy because unlike mere mortals, he is not bound by a finite lifespan or limited strength. And that was made most clear at the cross and empty tomb of Jesus Christ our Lord. And if that's true, that Jesus is risen, and I'm convinced it is, spoiler alert, then all bets are off. In other words, if Jesus is alive, how can we respond any other way than total and full trust towards the God who raised him? Now, in a few moments, we're going to sing Christ, our hope in life and death. And when we get to that chorus and say to ourselves and to each other, oh, sing hallelujah, our hope springs eternal, I urge you, my friends, to truly and deeply 
Raise your voice in praise to God. Expressing your hope in Him. Committing to sing His praise with your soul for all of your days. Let's pray. God, You are worthy of all of our praise. And I simply ask now that You would strengthen the hearts of those gathered here and listening either live or later to remember that they can trust You. And for those here or watching or listening later, if there be any of them who do not know You, that they would turn to You in saving faith today. We affirm together that there is no one else that we can trust in and that all other hopes and helps will fall short in comparison to our ultimate hope and help in Jesus Christ. And I pray in His name. Amen. Let's take a few minutes and continue in prayer quietly in response to God's Word.